Hello and welcome to another edition of um, Making Things Better and Making Better Things. Um, this is a fantastic one, actually. Thoroughly enjoyable conversation with Steve Chapman. Um, Steve is, uh, well, I'm not going to explain what he is, he, he's lots of things. I, I was introduced to him as an artist. The first time I met him, he gave me a, a fake poster for a fake music fest called Sponfest, and I had to go and stick it up somewhere. It's a hilarious poster, and the whole idea is you, he puts his stuff up, people take it, and they keep it, and if they want to email him and, or tweet him, get in touch they can but it's kind of like democratizing art um giving it away to people that otherwise maybe wouldn't wouldn't have it um but he's so much more than that it's such a fascinating conversation about well fundamentally about what success is and about failure um and and not failing actually um and honestly one of my favorite one of my favorite um conversations in this series so far such a lovely man and i really really hope you enjoy it we are recording now um let's do those levels a little bit more hello bingo. Yeah. yeah i think we're good and talking of bingo thank you oh um, um, he's on the podcast in october <laughs> he's amazing he's amazing so i'm sat in um my usual place in london at the house of st barnabas um, and we're sat upstairs. You might get a bit of noise around us as tea's being delivered or coffee or people arrive for the day. Um, but I kind of like that, actually. And I'm sat with Steve Chapman, and um, Steve's incredible. I'm not going to tell you anything about him. I'm going to let him tell you about himself. Um, Steve. Hello. Tell me about yourself. I don't know. Where do I start? At the beginning. It's at the beginning. Um, I, I take quite... A lot of pride in not being able to describe myself anymore. Um, if I attempt it, I say I'm an artist who's interested in creativity and the human condition. That's it. Brilliant. Uh, and, and I and we'll, we'll unpick some of that in a minute. Creativity yeah. and the human condition. Yeah. But that whole thing about not being able to define yourself anymore is endemic. Yeah. I everyone I speak to has the same dinner party challenge and shit shit phrase but that same what is it you actually do yeah. conversation normally with someone that's older than them normally their parents or um, or someone that has got a really simple and well defined job like uh, a clerk in a bank or someone who records um, video you know something with a really yeah. clear definition the rest of us it feels like we're skating around in a whole kind of cloud of of kind of creative opportunity, not being able to define exactly what yeah. it is. Do you ever feel panic in that? I have to my entire life. I, I used to just want to say, I'm a plumber, because there's no follow-up questions then. People aren't going to say, so what do you plumb? Oh, they just go, all right, you're a plumber. That resolves that as that conversation ended. And I, and I guess the thing is with saying I'm a plumber, the only follow-up question is, are you busy at the moment? Could you do a job yeah, for me? Yeah. Do you ever get, when you describe what you do, people saying, are you busy at the moment? Can you do they sort of give up after a while, I think. It's like, my panic used to be, because I can't articulate it succinctly like I'm a plumber, um, that I must be faking it. I must be an imposter. But now I've started to respond to the question when I'm feeling brave. Oh, brilliant. Thanks for coffee. Amazing. Awesome space for you. 
Do you want any toast, toast or anything? No, no, I'm good, thank you. you. Sure. Thanks. I'll give you a card. Oh, you're opening a tap. I'll open a tap today. <laughs> I trust you. Okay. No. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Should we pour and then carry on? Yeah, yeah, I'll, be, I'll, I'll do it. I'll be dad or mum or whatever. Mum, Jim, the base. Serving a roll. You want? Um, so. So I've started trying to answer by describing what I'm interested in or what I'm doing. Because the whole, the whole idea is life is live, isn't it? Yeah. Even if you're a plumber, you're not plumbing the same pipe every day. No, or, you're not. And, and, and even if you're a plumber, even if you love soldering, I love soldering. Right. Right. Is a yeah. particular fan of Yorkshire olives, right. a particular type of um, way of joining pipes. Um, even if even if you love what you do, outside of what you do, you will love other, other things. Yeah. And I've always found it frighteningly thin to, and, and veneery to, to introduce ourselves by the thing we get money for. Yeah. And that's fundamentally yeah, yeah. what cuts to the heart of that question of what do you do, is, is where do you sit relative to me? Yeah. It's a yeah. hierarchical yeah, yeah. sorting. And I think it's changing to a creativity or, a, or good is the new call. Yeah. Like what do you do? Do you, do you help or do you hinder? I think, I think it's moving in that way. Yeah. Thank you so much. I think it's moving in that way, but maybe not fast enough. Yeah. So, well, it, can, it can start being brought back into school. My daughter started secondary school day before yesterday. Um, and I remember when I was at school, it was always about what do you want to be rather than what you're interested in. That's what I've said to my daughter is, you, if you treat the next five years, let's just work out what you're good at and what you're interested in. Yes. And forget about everything else. It's five years of doing that, what, what you're good at, what you're interested in. Don't worry about what you want to be. You know what, you're right. When I think back, because I think we're about the same, you're a bit younger than me, I think. So, um, 49, nearly... We grew up in the 70s, early 80s. Those words that we used, that we were asked about, what do you want to be? Yeah. Happy was never the answer. No, no. What do you want to do when you grow up? <laughs> it's like when you, it was like pre grown up yeah. and then grown up. And I always remember doing one of those, I think in Leicestershire they were called. Cascade. It was like a careers advisory software. Yeah. And you, and you ticked questions, and it came back as I think it came back as our RAF pilot, <laughs> which, which was kind of what I wanted it to come yeah. back as at the time. Yeah. So I just steered it. Yeah. Or yeah. professional rugby. Well, they weren't, yeah. weren't professional then. Rugby player. Yeah. Um, and I always remember thinking, how can I make a decision on what yeah. I want to do? That's assuming it's going to be, when you do it, you're going to want to do it forever as well. Yeah. Oh, there's so much to go out here. You're, you're, abs you're absolutely right. Because I, I ended up doing a bit of everything. I ended up doing a science and art and a humanity and psychology, which is, in my opinion, all of those yeah. th three things. It's definitely not a science. It's definitely not just an art. It's definitely not just a humanity. It's a blend. And I, and I always felt like I was hedging my bets, and I always felt a bit like the jack, the jack of all trades and, and master of none. And then my degree was a science degree, but I did all the human options. So yeah, yeah. I ended up hedging, yeah. like literally all the yeah. way through. Actually, us hedgers are where it's at. Yeah. Us yeah. specialist generalists are, are where it's at. So tell me about you as a kid. What was it like as a kid? Well, I remember at primary school, 
um, in the last, must have been the last year of primary school, I used to write storybooks about his character called Yappy Dog. And I can Yappy still draw Yappy Dog. I suddenly remembered him a couple of years ago. And I used to write these stories about his adventures um, and illustrate them as well. And the teachers thought they were so good, I could go and read them to the younger kids. So I remember vividly at primary school, so age like 10 or 11, sitting down with all the little kids sitting down, reading the stories that I'd written and shown in the pictures. And then I used to make little radio shows at home on my little like, press record and play on the old tape recorder yeah, yeah, with yeah. a record player and all of that stuff. What make was that tape recorder? I think it wouldn't have been Sony. It would have been something that sounded like Sony. Like <laughs> Sanyo. <laughs> Sanyo, possibly. But realistic even. Yeah. The tandy one. Yeah. Really cool. I, and I remember if you pressed the record button slightly before the play button, it made like a beep sound. Um, I used to pretend that that was like my sensor for swearing. You could just about do it. Like, That's brilliant. <laughs> but then I went to secondary school and no one was interested in that. And I think secondary school had the sum effect of me going into secondary school thinking, right, this is my superpower, writing, drawing, creativity, play, all of that, and coming out thinking I am both um, unintelligent and uncreative and got a job in a factory thinking that's my lot. So something during that secondary school experience caused that. Maybe maybe a third me, a third my background in the environment, a third school, I don't know. That That's the saddest story of education. I know the inverted commas around yeah. education that I've ever heard. Because I can see in my mind's eye this confident 11-year-old who's bubbling over with new ideas and putting them and playing and, and experimenting and they're hit, like running into the wall of secondary education which yeah. I've always felt was broken and I've had debates with, with ironically I've had a debate with a friend which was a very long one over Twitter which is never the best place to have a debate about creativity and education and he seemed to think I was trying to say we should all code and not learn classics and that they're, they're both important but the interesting thing is he schooled all of his four children privately yeah right. his last touch of state education was probably in 1985 right so he's got no idea how it's changed yeah and how that creativity has been has been squashed yeah. further in the pursuit of standards yeah and and so we're out, we're now turning out standardised people for a world that needs more creativity yeah. than ever. If you but it needs more. I was talking to someone yesterday. It needs more weirdos, and weirdos in the good sense of weirdness. Weirdness as being a provocation for change. Completely. And when I speak to my clients, they're, they're, they all. I lecture at university. There's a there's a free bee thing. I lecture at yeah. group. School of Design. I really enjoy it because it keeps me young and it keeps me fresh. And I've got all these amazing creative young adults doing bonkers shit. Yeah. Because yeah. design attracts that anyway. Yeah. And then they get serious in their last year and they, and the last third of the last year, they cut their hair and they yeah. go and buy a suit and then they go to milk round evenings and employment. Yeah. And, and then you've got Unilever and you've got P&G and you've got. Sony and you've got Nike coming the other way going where are all the fucking weirdos yeah and all the weirdos have shoehorned themselves into, yeah. a, into a, a persona that isn't them perceiving that that's what's going to get them employed yeah and it isn't yeah because you're right 
Yeah. What we need is more weirdos. Yeah. It's. I'm writing something at the moment that is. I think I held a dark secret for many years was that I was an imposter in everything that I did. I mean, I think most people have that, but few talk about it. I don't know anyone when I get to it. When I do my How to Be a More You course, every single person has got imposter syndrome, says they've got imposter syndrome, and the ones that haven't, they're imposters, they genuinely have, and they're just like. Yeah, I mean, and that's the difference. If it's imposter syndrome, the thing that I'm writing, I'm trying to work out how to write at the moment is. It's not, we're not imposters, we're outsiders. And there's a role of outsiders, which is why I'm interested in outsider art. Outsider art brings a naive but passionate weirdness to it. And so if we were to nurture, I mean, this is the whole world of creativity. Organisations that I work in all want creativity, but don't want it to be any different to what's normal. Whereas we should be employing outsiders. Don't employ me to teach people creativity. So I sort of think I know something about it. Let's go and grab someone off the street that's passionate about it. It's like the rise of the outsiders, I think, starts to shift all of this. I think that's fascinating, and you're right. Um, I work with big organisations that all want to be creatively disruptive, as long as it isn't too creative or too disruptive, as long as it relates to what they did last time. Because they're fearful that the customer or their team won't go with them if it's too different. And, and then all night being awake worried about what their competitors are doing because yeah. it's really different. Yeah. So how do we, well first of all, let's just finish, you know, I can see you leaving secondary school, right pissed off, going to work in a factory. How did you then turn that round into what you do now? The abridged version <laughs> is, um, I mean before I even got this job in a factory it was quite a depressing time. Um, I went for an interview in a state agent, and I remember wearing a, I was like gangly 18 year old or 17 year old, however old you are then, with this suit that didn't fit, that I didn't want to wear, I had long hair, um, just clearly was never going to get the job. I also remember going to an interview at a concrete factory, and drove it in a suit and tie and got rejected because they didn't think I'd be strong enough to lift up bags of concrete. So that's a pretty, pretty low point. Yeah. Um, my, my strength is belied, was belied by my skinniness at the time. But I got this job in a factory, um, temporary job, out of the newspaper. I used to come home and there'd be newspaper job ads cut out and left on my bed by my mum, which is like, you're going to have to get a job. Um, and t- I started packing boxes, but 20 years later I left, I left that organisation as the um, global director of organisational change and people development so within that 20 year period so there's a transition there which um, oh, I'm distracted by the phone call well you're not allowed to make phone no, calls in here no. and I'm distracted by the phone call as well but I can't do anything about it no. so we'll ignore it Yeah, it's just rude and we'll crack up yeah. good you've named it um, so working in the factory so I started working in the factory um, packing boxes and just become fascinated by his factory life because you'd get on day one you'd get given this org chart to say that this is how it all works here's the hierarchy and I'd look around the factory floor and think that's not how it works I think that's how you think it works but that's not how it works that um, 60 year old mother hen on the packing line in the corner has got more positional power and status and influence than anyone on this org chart so I just become really interested in people um, and because I've become interested in people, I've become good at working with people. So I got made a supervisor. 
because I could work with problem people. That's another inverted commas, by the way, problem people. Yeah. And then I kept getting put in charge of different teams of problem people, or turnaround jobs. Um, and of course the imposter at the time is going, I've got no, no qualifications in any of this. I was just interested in the people. I'd listen to them and hang out with them and get to know them. And then that kept happening, kept happening, kept happening, until at one point someone said, oh, you're really good at this organisational change, this organisational development, culture change stuff. And I said, am I? Um, they said, yeah, we're going to give you a job doing that. So that's when I sort of started specialising instead of leading teams and working with teams is going into places, the language I'd use now is to cause a disturbance, to shake things up, to, to start to get some culture change. And again, I was just, in this 20 years, I must have had 15 different jobs, um, but I never applied for one. Uh, didn't, the only application I did was that original package. Within job, the same company? Within the same company. So you did 20 years yeah. in the company? Because, uh, there are two reasons for that. One is because in a, in a large multinational, there's a load of different jobs. Also, second, secondly, thinking this is the only company that won't find you out, so don't rock the boat. Right, fuck me. There's loads here. Right. Yeah. And I love the idea of watching you playing frog with difficult teams and just jumping yeah. from one difficult yeah. team to another. Sort of but that, that inertia that you just described in that last sentence, that I'm not going anywhere else yeah. because these people. Won't well, dig deep and know that I'm shit. Whereas the new people, yeah, they'll find they, they might find out. I've said before that the um, the biggest. I mean, it was a, it was a nice enough company to work with, nice benefits and everything. But the thing that kept me in that job for so long was self doubt. Self doubt is the biggest employee retention tool anyone can ever have. And I wonder if organisations have this superficial self doubt that they accidentally do that keeps people in the role. I was just about to ask exactly yeah. that question. If feels like that's true. The, the, in the big organisations, I've not worked for a big yeah. organisation for nearly 20 years. Yeah. But when I did, it, there was very much a clear, you can do, do well but not too well. Yeah. We're going to help you move forward but not, don't threaten too much yeah. the people above you. And that is Yeah. That, I think, is inbuilt. And I, and I don't think it's ever put down by anybody in rules. I just think it's a collective rule that people abide yeah. by. Almost naturally. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a talk that I'm working on in my head that the working title is, we all secretly know this is bollocks, but we don't want to name it. And that is to do with how, how most organisational life works. And, and it irritates me when people use metaphors of nature to describe organisational life, like an ant colony or a beehive or something, it's bollocks. Because wolves with the leader, the ones yeah. at the back are the strongest to look at, to shit. The, 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 the biggest flaw, even if there is a hierarchy in a beehive or anything like that, um, as far as I know, they've not got, um, bees don't have egos, as far as I know, I've never interviewed one, um, and everything they're doing is in service of the greater whole that is nature. There's not, there's not competition, they're not trying to eradicate each species. So organisational life I have a great respect for, but I find it more and more bizarre the more I've got out of it. But the key to me was just, again, people. So I'd be, I've just always done what I'm interested in. And I remember sitting in the factory when I was still working there, doing this sort of organisational change, culture change job, and thinking, I'm bored with the factory now, how about if I did this globally? And I looked in the phone book, found the head of global organisational development, um, sent her an email saying, can I come and buy you a coffee? And I went, met her, 
uh, a lady called Sally, uh, bought her a coffee and said, can I come and work for you f for no more money? And that's what I did all the time, is just would find out something I'm interested in, say, can I buy you a coffee? I'll come and do it for no more money. Um, if you like me, then hire me. And that's how I got into the global role. But Sally was brilliant, because she said, um, she sort of spotted something in me and said, what do you want to do? What do you want to learn? Yeah, more coffee would be good. What do you want to do? What do you want to learn? Do you want to do an MBA? Do you want, what do you want? What are you interested in? And I thought, all right, I'm interested in all this people stuff. So the first thing she did was she paid for me to do a year's training with the NTL Institute, which is the American Institute that founded a lot of sort of um, um, human studies in organisations. And I spent a year with them doing bizarre things like a tea group, which is a therapy group, which is 70 hours in a circle with no agenda with 12 other people. 70 yeah, hours? Yeah, not non-stop. It may have been 60 hours or 70 hours. Over the space of a week, um, you sleep in between. But the whole idea of the tea group was, it's one of the most intense things I've done, is the, there is no content. The content is whatever you're experiencing in that moment. And it, it's incredibly intense. And it was through the tea group and that, end, that year with the NTL Institute, I sort of started to realise a bit more who I am. Fucking hell, right. <laughs> so day one of the tea group, Yeah. how many are in the circle? There's, I think there's over 12 or 14, I can't remember. Badly constructed tea group I was in, because it's meant to be varied, but I was the only man in it. Okay. Which was brilliant in yeah. terms of working out who I am as a white Western middle class man. <laughs> yeah. So day one, walk in, sitting in a circle, we all know what we're getting ourselves into. Um, two facilitators that are just there to do stuff only if it's needed. And we all sit down, there's nothing. And then someone will speak and say, this, this is interesting, isn't it? And that, that's the start of the work. And that slowly unravels over 60, 70 hours, whatever it is. That's like five days, that's, that's weekly yeah, bit. Yeah, I think we'd start at like nine in the morning and then we'd finish and have lunch and stuff. The rule was you didn't talk about tea group outside the tea group. Then we'd come back and do an evening <laughs> session. This is the film. Oh, yeah, it's, um, and I remember one point, it may have been in the first day, someone just started to freak out and go, Oh my god! I've just realised this is what it, this is what it is for 60, 70 hours, whatever it is, um, and then we just follow whatever's arising for us. The, the facilitators very low touch. At one moment, someone said, "Can I just write something on a flip chart?" And I go, "No, no. You just work with what is." And we went through um, stories of people's life stories, basically stories of hope, of loss, of mourning. Um, of someone's uh, of mur history of murder in their family, some relatives got murdered, of racism, of sexism, of homophobia. It just, it all comes out. There were arguments, there were falling out, there were tears. Um, but the biggest moment, there were two big moments for me that, that still stick with me. One was, I said something, which was um, a lady sitting opposite, I just said, what was it you were saying earlier? Because I, I, I was interested. And the, uh, the lady sitting next to me, uh, a young Indian lady, completely freaked out at me. Completely freaked out at me about how I was ignoring her. And it, it just, it's like exploded. And I just remember going bright red and thinking, what have I done wrong? And it was just all of, I, I was, <laughs> it was all the projections on white Western men. Why? So th this young lady had been, 
hindered by and her life came out in me. Uh, we're good friends now. We're still good friends. And, and, but was, and, and I understand. Yeah. And she was probably right. Yeah. And, and you were feeling the weight of yeah, that. Absolutely. As yeah. a white 50 year old male wandering yeah. around in relative privilege, I, I feel fucking yeah. guilty sometimes yeah. for breathing. And, and I shouldn't. Yeah. But she should feel angry. But not, it's not your fault. No. But as a totem for the oppressor. Yeah. You're perfect. Well, and that was such a intense experience but a really valuable one really valuable one the other one in T group I remember was um, at the time I, I was saying oh I don't I don't see different I treat everyone as the same thinking that was a that was a nice positive thing I remember the facilitator who was this bearded wise old owl man went looked at me right in the eyes and said Steve that's because you've never had to notice difference before because of who you are and I just went Shit! And it's at that moment, it's just like, oh, we could get it. Now. We could do this whole yeah. conversation about team because I am absolutely oh. hooked. What happened at the end? How did it? How was that? What happened at the no, end? So the last it, twenty minutes. It, it, I think at the end, it is facilitators would say, "Well, we've got two hours left. Pay attention to that, and, and when we're done, we're done." And I think we got to the end, and they said, "Well, that's it. Wherever you're at, that's it." Did no. you miss it the next day? Oh, no, I don't think so. I think we're all glad to be to be out of it. <laughs> but that, that was the first module of the year. Uh, and I remember going home and hugging my family like I'd not hugged them before. But the, the, the important thing here was Sally saying, what do you want to do? I recommend this. That was the start of me thinking, right, who am I? Uh, the, I mean, this, was a, this is a massive multinational organisation. Yeah, yeah. And yet there were people like Sally. Yeah. Because we often, I mean, I work with big companies and they're full of great people. There's also some not great people yeah. in there. But we often feel like they can't be amazing people. Yeah. Because why would you sell your soul and your ethics to go and work for a big yeah. organisation? And that's incorrect. Yeah. There's so many great people doing amazing things, trying to change yeah. their organisations. Sally's still there. No, she's, she's out on her own now. Um, but I keep in touch with her. But the second thing she did was having... I think I discovered some confidence in that tea group that meant um, uh, Professor Bill Critchley, who I'd known for years, um, he founded, co-founded the master's programme at Ashridge, which is now no longer there. One of the best master's programme in culture and philosophy and all of that type of stuff. And he knew my work. And three years in a row, he said, I think you should do my master's programme. And for two years, I said, no, I'm not good enough. And then the, the, he, I saw him that final year after T Group. He goes, I'm not going to ask you again. Do you want to do it or not? And I think T Group gave me that confidence to go, yeah. And he said, that was your um, entry interview you're in. And then Sally paid for the Masters as well, sort of fully knowing that it was likely to end up in me leaving. And so I spent two years at Ashridge doing... I, I felt sick at Ashridge for the first few months because it's the belly of the beast. I'm not an academic. I'm not good at this stuff. Ashridge is like Hogwarts. I mean, it's not your words, or they are your words. What's the, oh, they're, they're my words at the time. I'm not good enough. No, I'm not good enough. Um, this is this is an academic place, um, and a roller coaster ride over Ashridge. But I remember the early feedback that a tutor, I wrote an assignment, and again, remember I have no first degree. I had a D in A level geography because I wanted to go up mountains. Um, that was it. That was my decision to do A levels. Is I don't want to work in a factory yet. Um, and the first I wrote this really up its arse first assignment 
that was how I thought academics wrote about this stuff, and most of them do, to be honest, mm. which is all quotes and stuff, and blah, 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 in that voice. I remember writing in that voice. And the, the tutor saying, this sounds all very clever, but I can't see you in that. Um, if, you, if you write like this, you, you won't get through this program. And just thinking, oh my God, I really am not good enough. But he really helped me, this guy called Hugh, um, write from a position of my own experience. What am I interested in? What do I think? What do I feel? And it's like, no, but that was wrong at school. And then as soon as I started writing for that, everything shifted. And the thing is, you can get a good master's, a good PhD, a good career, pretending to be somebody else in the way that you write yeah. and you speak. But you'll never change anything majorly when you're conforming to the norms yeah. of something else. No, absolutely. And I, I didn't know that until that point. So this is... 31, 32 um, years old um, and th then I was just encouraged to follow my interest and my interest was in this whole thing that I was saying earlier most of this is bollocks but none of, none of us want to name it life is live organisations are live interactions between human beings um, what's all this nonsense about how we write about leadership and change in that so I wrote my dissertation on spontaneity and I remember in my viva at the end of the dissertation and again, Bill, uh, uh, Bill Critchley supervised me through this, sitting there, and at the end of the Viva, and I loved the Viva, because I was just talking about something I was really interested yeah. in. And at the end, the, uh, the tutor said to me, right, well, you've passed, um, and it's one of the highest marks we've ever given. We've given you 89% for your dissertation, so that's uh, distinction overall in the whole thing. And I just burst into tears, because that was the moment then that that academic demon just went, I give up. <laughs> Maybe amazing. you're writing, yeah. And it's it, 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 it just, oh, it's like a, a, a shedding of, of weight. Maybe people are just interested in what's obvious to me, what, what's instinctive of to me. Of course they are. And, and, and I'm glad that even popped because you had no, no place there in your, on your shoulder and your brain. And, you know, the thought that actually the education process is the reason that that demon existed. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, and I kind of sailed through. We call, I called it. Um, we, we had middle school and upper yeah. school, so we had three tiers. I kind of sailed through middle school, just being me, actually. Yeah. And then I felt like I had to change when I got to like GCSE, o, o level as it was, and A level, and um, and completely asked up. Yeah, completely asked because right. because there was no space for me. I was trying to be. My time was taken up by trying to be somebody yeah. else. Yeah, and I was lucky. That I went to university in the time when it was free. Yeah, yeah. You were paid to go to university. Yeah, yeah. Imagine that, and and I could make more mistakes. Then. Yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't until I came to London on my placement year, two or three things happened. I had an amazing boss in Camden who yeah. gave me space to yeah. fuck about it, and I did fuck about it, and I designed yeah, amazing yeah. pop posters. And yeah. I wrote love letters that would break people's hearts and yeah. send to my wife. Every he read them on. on paper plates and right, all sorts nice. of shit and posted yeah. them and they all got their hole because the postman went or the postwoman went that's beautiful yeah don't crush it yeah so, so I, he was amazing he gave me that space yeah. to play and he, he died literally the year after right. i finished my placement so wow. i never had the, ch the chance to go back with mature hindsight and yeah. go john roberts you're a genius yeah and i had a couple of great lecturers yeah. in my second year i'm lucky what do kids do that leave, join the factory, and stay there? That's, that's heartbreaking. I mean, this is the whole movement that I'm interested in, in starting. 
I'm calling brute creative after the whole art brute movement, yeah. which is the rise of the outsider. So it's, tell me about. I mean, tell me where you are now. Yeah, because we've. I've met the first time I met you. You gave me a false sign for a festival. <laughs> yeah, spawn fest. And spawn <laughs> fest, and you asked me to go put it up somewhere that somebody would see it and steal it. Yeah. And I stuck it on a toilet in yeah, the Yeah, yeah, I remember it. Yeah. In, oh, what's that dreadful part of town, Mayfair. Yeah. Because I thought this is exactly where it needs yeah. to be. These of themselves people need yeah. to see it. And they're not all of themselves no, in no. Mayfair, but, but, but it fell out of nowhere. Yeah. Tell, me, tell me about what you do now. Well, I, I went out on my own after I'd done that Masters. Um, I worked part-time for the organisation, which was, again, another great boss just saying, instead of going, why don't you work part-time? It's a great way to start your own business. Um, and started doing work around creativity and things, innovation, that type of stuff in corporates. But where I am now is, I said to someone the other day um, who was asking me about all of this, I said, I'm interested in screwing around with normality, just, which is a continuation of what, I guess it's those 35 years, whatever it was, of self-doubt and all of that, I have no regrets for at all because it's given me fuel for what I'm interested in now, which is screwing around with reality. What, how, how do we make the world a less static place where people cling to identity and labels and we go about trying to change society and organisations and people in ways that we, we know don't work, but we, we reassure ourselves by convincing that we do. Um, and someone described all of my work as art. Oh, earlier this year, which I thought, oh, actually, I quite like that. I would. I, that's right, exactly... Yeah. i describe you as an artist. Right. There's so much to unpack, Steve, but I love the idea of this matrix of unreality yeah. that we're all clinging, not all of us, that many people cling to. Yeah. And you call it. Yeah. And, and, and you're not the only one. No, lots no. of people yeah. are beginning to do this. You're a leader in it. But lots of people are beginning to do it. At what point will the matrix collapse? I don't know if it will, um, but I think the rebels get stronger. It's uh, that, that's the exciting thing. Will they become the matrix? Yeah, I mean that's that's the danger. That's why I think it's. Um, I don't like repeating stuff. I don't like repeating stuff because then you become your own little matrix of the familiar. Um, I've got a book. Oh look, yeah, the sixteen point six seven percent book, which is where I write down ideas, knowing I will do one in six of them. Yeah. I was going to ask you about it, because yeah. I could see it poking out the yeah. top of your bag. Um, so I'm just constantly thinking, I always have too many ideas, and rather than refine them, just write them all down. And the ones that have a, an interest, I'll do. And the big one earlier this year was Inexpert, um, which is an example, I guess, of the type of work that I do now. Which, um, I did a TEDx talk last year. Yeah, so um, Masks. Yeah, we're at Masks and Inner Critic, which I loved, and they were lovely, uh, TEDx Tunbridge Wells. And it made me realise how polished and refined. Nick, isn't it? Who yeah, Nick? yeah, yeah. So yeah. I know Nick. Yeah, we used to work together at um, uh, Brands and Agency. Yeah. many, many, many. Years. I mean, what what was lovely about working with Nick and all of those guys is they didn't attempt to round me off and polish me too much. I said, I'm talking about shaming in your critic. If I do that in a polished, scripted way, it's not going to work. <laughs> you can't do no. it in a polished. Script. But then I've seen lots of other things where people have real moving stories that can have an impact. But they're not believable because they've been coached to be good speakers. Um, I'd rather just listen to a passion than a good speaker. So anyway, in the back of that, I thought, what would the opposite of TED be? 
TED has become yes. a normality, expertise has become a normality. What happened if I did the opposite of TED? Um, so I do what I always do, which is leap, then look, put it all out on Twitter, said, I'm running in Expert 2018 uh, next year in May, call for speakers, put it out there. And once it's out there, I can't back out of it. I, really. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Leap then look is my mentor in all of these experiments. So, because uh, we're running out of time, I'm yeah. going to do another one with you, to be honest with you, because this is really exciting. Tell me a little bit about the two things that we've spoken about recently. Yeah. I was part of your brilliant podcast, The Sound of Science. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that, and then also tell me about... Um, Hundred crap faces. Hundred crap faces. Yeah. Again, they are. They came out of the previous sixteen point six seven percent book. And again, like in experts, they all start with a question. So, I remember scrolling through Twitter one day, which isn't always a good thing to do, um, and thinking, everyone's doing podcasts. A, I've never got enough time to listen to them, but. All podcasts are to do with words. I wonder what would happen if I recorded silence. And then I thought of John Cage's 13, 33, whatever it is, yeah, yeah. he's recording a silence. And I thought, so I told a couple of people, I said, I'm going to do a silent podcast. And they went, what's the point in that? And, and people saying, what's the point in that? Means, yeah, I'm onto something here. Yeah. Um, and so it's an experiment. A hundred episodes, each of which are under three minutes with special guests, such as yourself. I've had um, therapists, I've had artists. I'm going to interview a, a social entrepreneur and um, a peer in the House of Lords in a minute. And, and the idea is that um, silence isn't empty. Because if silence was empty, you wouldn't be able to hear it. And, and I, I'm gonna, I, I agree, and I love it. And I remember on Radio 4, about it must be ten years ago. Somebody captured all of the bits of silence which yeah. weren't silent. Yeah. They were the page flip, they were the Yeah. And they put a CD. Right, oh, nice, it. yeah, yeah. They put a CD of the silent bits of Radio 4. Yeah. And it sold shed loads. Yeah. And there's something compelling. And when I recorded that with you, we were in the chapel here. Yeah, yeah. And it was really noisy. It was the noisiest yeah. silence I've ever but it wasn't an uncomfortable silence. Yeah. And we we get a bit embarrassed about silence. Yeah. And I teach people to speak better on stage. I don't, I teach people to be themselves on yeah, stage. Yeah. And from, from that position, they always speak better. Yeah. And one of the key things I have is, it's okay to be totally silent. Yeah. And to have a moment and go, hmm. Don't mm. We um all the time, yeah. because we want, we want to fill that little yeah. gap. Silence is brilliant, and I and I I've started to play with it. Yeah, yeah. I listen to a lot and watch a lot of Stuart Lee. Um, I'm the same age, growing up yeah, in the same yeah. part of the world, middle class liberal elite, and and, and I and I understand yeah. that. Um, and he pushes things. He pushes a joke or a moment of silence beyond being funny to the point where it's embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. And then it becomes funny again. And I've started to mess around with this. Yeah, nice. And it, it, it's brave though. I yeah. remember doing it on stage in um, Croatia. I was doing a big talk, massive circular stage, 2,000 people. And I tell this story about how my brother was given um, my dad's business. Right. And I play it being bitter about it. Yeah. And there maybe there's an element of truth yeah. in that. Yeah. There, there may be, and I'm not willing to deny that um, or admit it. Um, 
and there's a line where I go, yeah, and he was given the business, like, like no money changed, like for free. Uh, and I did it yeah. for about three minutes. Yeah. And then I pretended to move on and then came back to it and went, and, went, and, and honestly, it, yeah. there was no money that changed yeah. hands, it was just his. Yeah. And Nicola was in the audience, my wife was in the audience going, oh my God. Because it was risky because yeah. it was not an English audience. Yeah. But it was, it, it really added something yeah. to that element of, of discomfort. Yeah. So I love, when you asked me to do the sound of silence, I just yeah. thought, yes. As a purveyor of podcasts, yeah. I love the idea of a nanti podcast. Yeah, podcast. And it, again, it's not. It's not against podcasts. It's just I wonder what the opposite is. Yeah. And people are getting so much from it. Some people, um, well, first of all, a load of people said this is the most ridiculous thing ever. My favourite tweet was, "Oh my god, podcasts have finally jumped the shark." And I thought, "Oh, great! I love that." There's a quote for it. Um, but people are using it as an invitation to do nothing for three minutes. Other people are just fascinated by it. doesn't matter where I've recorded it, I've not found pure silence. Um, other people are interested in the awkwardness of it. Other people say they love waiting for that moment where I say, Mark Shader, thank you. Because they don't know when it's going to come. And, and so I'm recording 100 episodes, um, and at halfway through I'm going to record, uh, put out the best of. <laughs> Which is similar to the to the Radio Four thing. I love that. So it's it's, it's exploring these gaps in between and a hundred crap faces is a similar is a similar thing. It's um, it's something I used to do in coaching with people where people or just it would come up. Someone would say, "I can't draw." And so we we'll prove it. Prove it. Draw a really bad drawing. And quite often, when you're instructed to draw a bad drawing, it ends up accidentally coming out good. That's you're right. I can't draw. I was told I couldn't draw. Yeah. Again, it's a school I was told thing. I wasn't yeah. the creative one. And um, and I've, I've begun to play with this in my workshops. Yeah. When we're doing, when we're coming up with new ideas for whatever it might be, business, culture, whatever it might be. Um, I say, right, give me your three best ideas, and give me your three shittest ideas. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's yeah. about an hour's process of playing and swapping and building, and, and then you pitch the ideas back, and no one can tell if it was on the left hand right, side nice. of the page yeah, good. or the right hand side of the page yeah. because the, they are even the intentionally crap ones yeah. are brilliant probably yeah. the crappest ideas are at the bottom of the list of good ones yeah actually. yeah yeah um and i love playing around don't we just lost the electricity we i love playing around with that i really do yeah i love the book you can buy that online yeah only on amazon at the moment but all the normal yeah yeah, yeah. it will and be you can buy that direct from you yeah yeah yeah. And people can listen to your podcast where? Um, at soundofsilence.org.uk. Everything, all, it looks like I've got hundreds of websites, but they all just point to the same one, yeah. um, which is canscorpionsmoke.com. And that, that threw me, and I wanted to right. ask you about yeah. that. So before, I was going to yeah, end that. Can be, yeah. uh, we're going to end here. Um, Can Scorpion Smoke, that's like the title of a new scientist book. Right. Where did that come from? When I was... Um, doing my dissertation um, I trained and performed a lot of improvisation as an as a embodied way of learning about spontaneity and I was in an improv show where I ended up in a scene with someone who was driving a car um, and I just started asking random questions as you do you find yourself wherever you find yourself in the improv show you're saying yes to the other person so we built up this scene and I just kept asking these random questions of the driver of the car who kept getting more and more irritated with my random questions, things like, um, like how deep is space, things like that. 
And then at one point, out of nowhere, I just said, can scorpions smoke? And I've no idea where it came from. Absolutely no idea. And the person I was working with just completely corpsed because it's just like, what? And the audience loved it. And afterwards, I, it was like, I don't, I've no idea where that came from, but that felt like the most spontaneous experience I've had. Whether it's a good phrase or not, it's irrelevant. And someone said to me, you should call your dissertation that. So I did. All of the other dissertations in Ashridge were given nice, sensible academic titles. Mine was called Can Scorpion Smoke? Um, and then I called my blog Can Scorpion Smoke? And then the first book that I wrote is called Can Scorpion Smoke? Um, and then it became the name of my business and everything. It means nothing. It means nothing. Um, and someone said to me the other day, actually, it means everything. I think it totally embodies you, me. Yeah. Completely. And you wouldn't struggle to get the air either. No, no, it's brilliant. It made me laugh the other day. I had a, a spam email from China saying, um, lots of people are interested in registering canscorpionsmoke.ce, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, no, they're not. <laughs> you do for a fact. Exactly. No one would be interested in that. Steve, yeah, I, every time we meet, I learn something. Whether it be which is the best pen to use, whether it be a little bit about myself, whether it be something to do with people's responses to the art because everything you do is art the work that you put out and um, I'm so pleased that you didn't retain the you didn't retain the constraining belief that you had at 16 17 that, that you weren't fit for anything other than working in a factory not that there's anything wrong with no. working in a factory but I'm really glad that you went back to being the um, the artist the creative person because we all we're all we're all creative it's just that yeah. some of us are told we are and some of us are told yeah. we're not mate i've loved that thank no, you thank so, you oh, thank amazing. you for having me we're, we're going to do another yeah yeah thanks <laughs> awesome. thanks mark wow so I, I hope you got as much out of that as i did um from recording it um it's interesting, you know, you kind of think with a, with a series like this, you kind of want like big names to attract big audiences. And, and I think Steve's a big name of the future. I genuinely think he's going to go on and do absolutely incredible things. Um, and uh, just a, a, such a lovely human conversation where nothing got in the way his 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 work didn't get in the way ego didn't his or mine didn't get in the way it was just such a a really enjoyable um 30 odd minutes uh, i really hope you liked it um stay tuned for the next episode i've got no idea it'll be coming soon um if there's anyone you think would make a great guest please um email me at mark at this is ape, A-P-E dot co dot UK. And um, let me know what you think. Thank you.